Hail Oxal. It is nice to be back on track with some proper content, my friends. We have a long episode ahead of us, uh, so today I shall try for once to keep it brief. But as usual, all I can promise is the attempt. Do you ever stop to wonder about the place names of your local vicinity? The clues that they can offer as to the ongoings and events and um, history of a certain site? Or did you ever have an experience of um, becoming aware of the etymology, you know, the meaning of a place name? And if so, did that change your perception of that site? Make you see it in a new light? Just sitting here, there's no shortage of examples that pop into my mind. I'm sitting here on the Isle of Manhattan in New York City, formerly New Amsterdam. You know, that's a story in itself. Man, 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 Manhattan. Sounds kind of nonsensical, does it not? Not if you're a native Lenape Indian, where Manahatan, or however it's pronounced, means gather bow. Which, of course, you know, probably reflects that uh, the isle used to be quite densely forested, perhaps. While today, there is scarcely a tree on the entirety of Manhattan that wasn't put there by human hands. Though Broadway was originally a Dutch name, this famous street runs the length of the island in a way that deviates from the regular Manhattan grid system. Kind of like a vein or a lifeline or an old scar even. Kind of more organically, along what was originally an old Indian path. There are other names with other stories to tell. Uh, related to my own heritage, for example. Um, I always wanted to visit the Williamsburg Whiskey Bar, Norman's Kill. A highly local name in every regard, and if you're not from around these parts, you might be mistaken and think that uh, the name reflects uh, perhaps a murder that occurred in the distant past or something along those lines. But Norman didn't kill anybody. Norman is, rightly enough, etymologically Norman, which actually reflects an early Norwegian immigrant presence in Brooklyn. Then you have Kill is a hydronym, a water name, bearing witness to one of the countless creeks that had to bow under to the steamroller of industrial progress and hence doesn't exist anymore. It's probably some sewage pipe somewhere. It's odd what sort of an impact we have on our environment. You wouldn't think, for example, walking to a coffee shop in Tursov in Oslo, that the name manifests the spectral presence of a pagan cult site, Thor's Hov, meaning Thor's temple or shrine. Joining me today, I have two eminent individuals. First of all, there is Christo Vasshus, who is a PhD candidate in onomastic sciences at the University of Bergen. Onomastic sciences, if you're not in the know, is basically the study of names and naming conventions and anything that has to do with it. So it's a bit of geography, it's a bit of uh, archaeology, it's a bit of uh, philology and linguistics, all wrapped together in a neat and juicy package. Crystal was actually one of the very first guests I had here on this show, so I'm very thrilled to have him back. And then we also have Lorina Albris, who is joining us a little bit into the episode, uh, who is an archaeologist and also happens to be his wife. And together, like bread and butter, they just comprise one of my favorite power couples in the study of the Nordic Iron Age. 
So originally, we were supposed to discuss the presence of ancient ethnonyms, that is, the names of ancient tribes and peoples in a Norway's county system, which is a faint recollection of a land before Norway, if you can imagine such a time, when we weren't one people, but a boiling, seething conglomerate of separate tribal peoples and kingdoms sharing the peculiar North Germanic dialect of Proto-Norse that would one day become the Scandinavian languages. Specifically what motivated this talk was the fact that Christer and I are concerned that, uh, how should I say, our indigenous knowledge about these tribal origins are being undermined by modern centralization in the form of administrational reforms. The old counties are slowly being replaced by larger administrative units with awkward names like Westland in place of the old Hordaland or, you know, the land of the Hordar, to name but one of these ancient peoples. That seemed straightforward, but as we ventured down the rabbit hole, we were sidelined by the temptation of the many tangents that such a deceptively simple topic turned out to hold. Demonstrating the power of names to evoke stories both new and ancient for present and hopefully also future generations as well. But today we are also hot on the heels of some of the secrets left behind by the unspeakable cults of Gothiskanza, right here on the Brute Norse Podcast power walking backwards into the future. It's a little bit early for me here. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. It's not yeah. early for me. It's good <laughs> afternoon kind of thing. Yeah. What are you drinking? Uh, Mjöd. Mjöd, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I just have my, my own production. Oh, great. Wonderful. We're mm -hmm. We'll have to uh, exchange recipes later on. Yes. That's... Do you have yeah. any secret tricks that you like to resort yeah, I've never, to? never ever once or never twice made the same uh thing really a uh, different kind of ingredients and different methods well not that different in methods but it always turns out different uh anyways because you know once the yeast would just not start fermenting the whole thing so i had to try like three different times with different yeasts um and you know just different ingredients different amounts of uh Honey to liter per liter wine, no uh, water and so on. Yeah, the ratio is different. Yeah, I yeah. always experimented like that. As, one time I tried to cram as much honey into into meat as I could, you know, just to yeah. see how far it would ferment. And uh, yeah. it became a very expensive uh, venture, <laughs> but, but it was... Uh, but it was... It turned out very good. You know, it's always... Uh, I think one of the most important... Uh, tips is to not skimp on the uh, on the quality or you know if it's mm. if it's an expensive product it's uh, more likely to be a good product as well not if mm. you source your own honey of course but uh... yeah I, I was lucky enough to well you probably know the same honey guy here in Bergen as I have used um, it's uh, I, I've used him several times or bought honey from him several times uh, last time it suddenly costed so much more because brewing mead has become more popular amongst breweries. So he actually sells off most of his uh, his honey to 
actual breweries. Oh, which damn. Is cool. Yeah. But, uh, you know, kind of unlucky when all of a sudden, instead of 20 crowns per kilo of honey, you have to pay 200 crowns per kilo of honey. Still, <laughs> it's closer still to the market cheap. price. Yeah, it's still cheaper, but not that cheap. Yeah, it's. Uh... Yeah, that's funny. I, I, I wasn't aware of this honey pusher. Uh, I did not. Uh... No? No. He's, um, um, he's somehow, uh, well, he's at least his bees are out at uh, the Arboretum uh, at Milde. I think he's somehow hired by the university. Not, not entirely sure what he does for the university, but his bees are certainly hired. Um, to, I don't know, pollinate, I guess. Mm, well, that's, uh, I should have known about this when I lived in Bergen, probably. Mm. <laughs> but I was yeah. not in the know. <laughs> no. uh, I, I think I first hooked up with him at a farmer's market, asked him if he had any spare honey, and he sure did back then. <laughs> I used to go to, there's a guy at the farmer's market on... Uh, on the wharf in Bergen, who um, often sells these big jugs of uh, unpasteurized apple juice, mm -hmm. like apple cider, mm -hmm. and uh, and he would warn people when uh, when he sold it to them that uh, that they have to make sure to drink this within two weeks because it can spontaneously ferment. Yeah, apple jack. And, and I I told him, you know. Oh, I know. <laughs> mm. That's the oh. whole point yeah. of this of this it's, purchase. This uh, half fermented uh, apple, half cider kind of applejack thing is the most delicious drink there is, almost. Yeah, no, I, that was I. I could keep my own with uh, with cider when I was living in the in the so-called swamp back in the day. Yeah. And of course, uh, I I went to Norway a few. Uh, like yes. Too. Yeah. And how was that? You had quarantine both ways, or what? Yeah, I had quarantine both ways, but that's fine. Because yeah. when I'm in Norway, I'm just in the countryside anyway. I don't really yeah. see see any people. But uh, but uh, I have I have some apple trees there at my property there, and mm. I expected to, you know, as I went on, that there would be this uh, bountiful harvest. But there's these yeah. fucking moths or some shit like that that been yeah. eating away at all the. Yeah. Apples, the, horrendous the, the this year. Combination of uh, bad weather during the blossoming, so the pollinators didn't really do that much. Uh, but also the uh, the round trees don't carry fruit this year, at least not as much fruit. So the moths that you would usually go to the round berries all go to the apples, the small amount of apples there are. So the apples are small and few and full of worms. So sort of extra protein if you're into that, but uh, maybe, well, at least to most people, that's the apples aren't good enough this year. Yeah, that's a big shame. Uh, maybe next year. Maybe I'll mm. have a cider press as well. That'd yeah. be great. But another thing that, of course, I, I noticed that... Um, I didn't think about uh, when I was in Norway last time. I was in Norway right before the lockdown in mm -hmm. February. Mm -hmm. uh, I even I even think I got the fucking virus uh, on my return or something like that. There's oh. 
Uh, but because uh, I was sick for a while and it was just just very weird. But anyway, that's that's not what I wanted to talk about. When I went to Norway this time around, I noticed something that I can't recall thinking about when I was there in February, uh, and that's a regional reform. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, uh, the municipal, the the, the, the regional reform. Uh, which uh, to the international audience here means nothing, of course, um, but uh, but it was impossible not to notice when I was crossing from Rogaland into what used to be Hordaland, and instead of the good old uh, the good old Hordaland sign, the Hordaland County where Bergen is in, for instance, uh, which usually has you know a crown and this. Uh, these crossed axes as its coat of arms, it didn't exist anymore. Mm. Instead, I was uh, entering the region called Vestlan, which means the West Country, which Rogaland, which is South West Norway, is not part of, apparently. Though, yeah, apparently. when people when people referred to Vestlan, you know, the West Country, uh, Rogalan and many other countries were also part of, <laughs> they were kind of implied. Yeah. But now Vestland is just this weird chunk in the middle of West Norway. Yeah. There's neither here nor there. Yeah. With the, with the grammatical form that just doesn't make sense. It sounds very unnatural, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a joke of a name, really. Yeah. So what the hell is up with that, Christer? Yes. So... Where do we start? 800s? 800s, uh, yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah, we well, could probably even go further back if we really wanted to oh push yeah, it. Sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, well, it, with this whole Fylkes um, uh, reform, so we have the, the regions in Norway are, uh, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent in the English language would be, but, you know, you... Uh, you have these entities of regions um, and, well, municipalities, counties, and so on. Um, and the reform that started off 1st of January this year sort of crammed together several pre-existing fylke into fewer, bigger fylke. And some of these older filkes were, well, they had historical names uh, dating far, far back. Um, and this is also the background for this new Vestland uh, filke, as you mentioned here, which is now actually three different historical filkes crammed together, uh, which is the filke of Songen. Signa Fylke um, and the Fylke of Fjordane, the, the fjords, and Hordaland. So these three are crammed together in this new Fylke Vestland, which is actually this, me pronouncing these names now are actually the first time I've ever uttered them out loud because I'm so infuriated by the whole well, first of all, the ridiculous names, uh, but also just the whole thing. Uh, it's it's annoying. Yeah, and it's very upsetting. It is. Yeah. So 
So this is part of a larger tendency towards centralization in Norway, mm. where the the politicians uh, uh, take uh, smaller mun- municipalities, maybe of just a few hundred people, and they they try to coax them into uh, they try to coax them into to joining together into a bigger municipality. Sometimes uh, these municipalities that have you know I, I don't know like Karmay where I'm from used to be six separate municipalities which sounds completely unbelievable but um and some of these are like connected in in reasons that make historical sense some are not mm. um but uh, one thing that is funny is that uh, they tried to get people to to vote like the 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 municipalities that got designated for this they tried to make the people their vote <laughs> to to join together and yeah. many of them didn't or maybe one one municipality would vote to yeah. to join the other but the other one didn't want to yeah. and and then kind of the is this top down sort of shit going on where the when the government doesn't really get their way they try to find other ways to do it mm. you know and this is part of a quite a kind of worrying tendency in norwegian domestic politics and uh uh you could also probably you know talk about like yeah uh, centralization in, in forms of like moving uh, hospitals mm. to to bigger regional hubs and stuff like that. Um, but then, of course, when all of that happens, the government suddenly decides, oh, uh, there's too much centralization, or like they pretend that they didn't uh, try to centralize all along, yeah. you know, and just m- strangled the life out of the rural, you know, regions. But uh, but of course, Fylki, uh, the Old Norse Fylki, I, I think etymologically is connected with uh, with yes, folk, correct. you know, as in yeah. people, you yeah. know. Uh, and, and that's one thing that is interesting with these counties is that it, uh, the different counties, uh, sometimes at least, they either have geographical names or what we often see is that they have uh, ethnonyms in them. Mm. So... Christoph and I are both from Rugaland, and Rugaland is, uh, of course, the land of the Rugians. Hmm. Rugi, as uh, as the Latin the rye munchers. Yes, that's that's what they think, at least that it's the the rye growers or the rye munchers, which is kind of interesting because um, I think I I dug into this a little bit because rye is a very obscure uh, cereal yeah, in prehistoric Norway. Modern, yeah. Yeah, I I think the first evidence of rye growing in Norway is from the migration era, maybe. Yeah, over Roman sense. period. Yeah, because yeah. mm. the hypothesis, I suppose, goes that uh, that the Rugians either moved in from the south or migrated from Scandinavia south into. Yeah, Pro- provided that you know the written sources we have of the Rugians in the first century um, is one tribe, um, either. Uh, living at Gotiskansa or you know Pomerania area, uh, moving from there to yeah either from there to uh, the Hogalan in Norway or the other way around or maybe from some third place splitting up and some parts of the tribe moving to Hogalan and the other tribe moving southwards the Baltic coast. Uh, several 
theories on this. And one could also, of course, argue that if it truly means the rye munchers, the rye growers, it's not unlikely that more than one uh, group of people would be considered by their surrounding societies as the rye growers if that's what they did and that they not necessarily are the same tribe or have the same origin. And of course, this is all very difficult to prove unless you have very clear archaeological or um, historical evidence for it, uh, which we don't really. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, those are very fair points. And also, uh, when we're talking about uh, so-called tribal identity in mm. in the Iron Age, it's it all gets very confusing very fast yeah. because uh, the identities were often quite fluent. You know, mm. you have some peoples like the Goths and the and the Huns, which of course is an Eastern people, but they they have this um, this franchise going on. Where it's like being being a Hun is more like a a political identity almost. Yeah. Yeah. So for a while there's been this um, this assumption that uh, a lot of these uh, ethnonyms sort of just travel with the elites. Mm. So uh, so if we actually have migrations of entire like I don't know rye eating communities from uh, further south and uh, Pomerania up to Scandinavia or vice versa is uh, is is maybe something that could be questioned because of course yeah. that but then again you know we're talking about uh, for instance the migration period I mean yeah. that was a that was a period of extreme uh, social stress in Scandinavia which we can tell <laughs> definitely from the from the archaeological sources but it's it's hard to trace the migrations uh, accurately I guess I don't think we have the data to say this or the other quite yet it's certainly very um, yeah as you say obscure and um, not you can't really put your finger on one thing or this happened and so it happened everywhere uh, and this is a general tendency all over um, I we a couple of days ago there was a, um, a seminar where an archaeologist from the National uh, History Museum in uh, Oslo mentioned that uh, they did pollen analysis of, you know, there's a tiny pond lake little thing in the middle of Stavanger, which is sort of the regional capital of Kogaland. Uh, and the pollen analysis would tell that there was more or less forest um, up until the 300s where all of a sudden it was cleared and then you have pollen from oats, not rye, <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, what, what does that mean? Does it mean anything at all? Um, and if it does mean something, what does it mean? What, what can we deduce from this? Uh, sort of an isolated case in this case doesn't really say a lot, but uh, yeah, it's interesting in, in any case. Yeah, that is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Oats, I guess. Uh, hmm. Oats uh, historically often been used as animal fodder. Mm -hmm. Very low status uh, uh, cereal, um, yeah. at least in in more recent years. Um, but one thing regarding like the migration stuff, uh, I remember 
you know, you had this big like Viking DNA study that was coming yeah. out, you know, and you know, there's always the same circus with that shit, mm-hmm. you know. With so you just have to ignore what the newspapers say, <laughs> and yeah. just yeah, and just try to see what the what the articles themselves the or like the the published stuff actually says. Yeah. And uh, but one of the things that was interesting there was that uh, you had like uh, uh, this is this is what the 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 newspapers spun as this kind of like like Italians coming to Scandinavia or whatever, but, <laughs> yeah. but it was actually like Lombard elites uh, going to Scandinavia, which is interesting because that seemed to um, I don't know if it really what I what I what I saw like that summarized as is like these Germanic barbarians who had spent a few generations in um, in southern Europe during the migration period were kind of returning home so to speak to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's uh, necessarily the. Yeah, I haven't really read. <laughs> I I don't have the know-how to uh, to make sense of this uh, genetic data, so so I'm gonna be careful what I say here. But uh, it if it doesn't uh, prove that uh, if it doesn't prove that uh, they definitely like came from like return to exactly from whence they came it certainly does give credence to what uh, um Jordanus and uh, these other uh, like barbarian chroniclers uh, of the iron age uh, say that uh, that these tribes the goths and the lombards they have a clear concept of originating in scandinavia mm. at the very least mm. uh, and uh, and here clearly they are following up on that uh, myth of origin yeah yeah, no, it seems seems to be um, present for um, for at least some time. But uh, I'm also not entirely convinced, or well, I, I suppose I'm in the same situation as you, not having read them properly and not having the same know-how to uh, to fully comprehend and grasp what this actually means. But um, um, it's certainly interesting how. Jordan. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name in English. Uh, Jordanes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Jordanes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he certainly, and possibly not even rightfully in all cases, but certainly gives an um, impression that South Germanic or East Germanic tribes were considered as spawning or having spawned from Scandinavia. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Jordanes is also the guy who first mentions uh, some of the names that you find in these, uh, well, Tilki names later, sort of tribal societies. Some probably had kings, possibly not all, but um, um, these Tilkis uh, and yeah, petty kingdoms that, you know, were at some point um, annexed into what came to be well, the Scandinavian kingdoms, more or less, because uh, all of at least northern Scandinavia, Sweden and Norway, uh, consisted of several petty kingdoms or tribal societies. Um, and so, an example, uh, Ranarike, which is um, one area it's mentioned as Ragnariki, so the Ragnarikians at, uh, in Jordanus' text, 
Um, same with uh, the Grani, which is uh, probably ethnonyms for the guys living in Grenland, which is also southeastern Norway, and uh, one of the previous Fylki. So these are, you know, quite early attestants of possibly even, uh, you know, attestants of actual place names we have today and regional names. And it's quite cool. Uh, bearing in mind that we don't actually have written sources from Scandinavia itself at this point, other than runic evidence, of course, which is not as elaborate as uh, Latin and Greek texts. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, they're very laconic, especially at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, though they have, there are some interesting uh, things there that that don't necessarily shed too much light on the the ethnic situation in Scandinavia at the time. But you have like, of course, these ek erilage inscriptions uh, uh, mentioning the the eruli. Uh, Otherwise called yeah. the Herules, but we don't really know yeah. what what they were. If it's a if it's a a specific group of people, like a like a warrior elite Whether it's phenomenon. A class or, yeah. I yeah, because it's well, it could be etymologically connected with Jarl, isn't that what they say? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole discussion about this. What is is the uh, the origin of this term? Erilaz. Um there was an this year or last year an article made by um, well an example one of the co-authors at least was uh, Harald Bjorvan. It's um, it's an article in uh, Viking, which is uh, Norsk Archaeologisk Årbok, uh, made by the authors Trude Iversen at the Cultural Historical Museum in Oslo. Karoline uh, Kjersru, which is also at the same museum, Harald Bjorvan, which is, you know, the probably the most important etymology guy, at least for Norwegian languages. Um, and then Justin Kimball from Cultural Historical Museum, Sigri Mansokar Gunnarsen, Kommune. Yeah. Uh, so they they had this um, wrote this article of uh, the Iril at Övreby in Vingermark, which is the latest Erilar inscription. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Uh, or when when I say latest, I mean of course latest discovered because uh, it seems to be one of the earlier Iril ex uh, inscriptions uh, with preserved E instead of well. I'm not going into the details of uh, sound changes here, <laughs> no, no. but that's one of the important arguments of the etymology of the word in this article. And so they claim it to be a connection with, <clears throat> well, with the term Jarl. Um, not that either Jarl derives from this or vice versa, but that it's somehow connected in the same root. Um, and that is it has to do with the warrior elite that came to be the ruling elite um in later iron age and viking age society yes the good old uh, good old uh, iron age kleptocrats mm. the banana republics of the north um, 
and I, I quite enjoy the, the kleptocrats, the ideas of kleptocrats uh, coming in there in the 600s. We sort of have evidence, at least in Western Norway, for archaeologically evidence for that. All of a sudden, the uh, well, you have sort of uh, established the settlements. You, you stop moving around as much. You base your farm, really the historical farms that we have in the Viking Age and Middle Ages and so on, seem to be established in the five, six hundreds. And many of the names, that place names that we have for these farms, uh, you know, we usually date them to some are Viking Age, some are earlier, some are later. We have this relative chronology of when we, well, what kind of time frame we date certain types of names within in uh, onomastic sciences. Um, and the interesting thing about this whole kleptocrats coming in uh, in the five, six hundreds is that it seems to correlate at least to some degree on what types of names you find on these different, uh, well, before 500, there's certainly a lot of natural names. So uh, names that we consider older than 500 are often compounded of, well, uh, topographic uh, characteristics or uh, might also be culture, but then related to, you know, farming on fields or what have you. Uh, or maybe bigger areas like Haim noun names names ending with ham in English, an example. Uh, so closely related to Haim in Scandinavia. Um, these these seem at least in some cases to be sort of dominions over a larger area and not so much a fixed place as you have in the later farms. And after six hundred. All of a sudden, you have place names where personal names show up. Erista, uh, Jensta, and so on. Um, and so does this have to do with some sort of idea of fixed ownership um, or you know, fixed geographical uh, inheritance? sort of stuff that show up I'm, I'm not sure but uh, certainly some uh, some questions that are going to be interesting to um, to follow up in coming years that is extremely fascinating mm -hmm. yeah so we have a consolidation of power maybe that coincides then with uh, yeah well with at, these, at uh... least at least in some areas it seems to to be the case um, and then another example was from the well, west country in uh, Norway, Vestlande, Søren Dinhoff, who m many of you possibly have heard of because he quite recently came out with this huge uh, new breaking uh, found, find of a temple in, um, well, in uh, Sundmøre, which is, uh, you know, huge. Um, Anyways, yeah, it's a, it's an extremely exciting find. It, it is absolutely, yeah. but but uh, what 
he was referring to here the other day was well in in the west countries we we don't really see this kind of thing uh, more or less every good place all the places that were suitable for farming and suitable for building houses have been occupied since the stone age because you know topographically that's where you can place your stuff in you know this fjordy and rocky areas so the places that were good to grow grains or what have you were equally good through all this period of building since the uh, yeah neolithic age and and so it's then difficult to say well do we always have a continuity of you know constant these the same family lived there since the stone age it's quite unlikely but not entirely unthinkable um yeah it's, it, it's a very interesting regional difference yeah that is very 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 interesting like we talked a little bit about rogaland and stuff like that in hordaland uh mm -hmm. there's of course the uh Hogda people yeah uh, who are well attested in the place names around there in different forms. Uh, you got like the, the Hardanger Fjord, which actually means the Fjord of the Hordar Fjord. Um, so it's a bit redundant, the Fjord <laughs> suffix on the Anger suffix, because yeah. Anger means Fjord. Anyway, there's there's that. There are other uh, ethnonyms in that area as well. Isn't isn't there something about Samnangel and... Uh, Ooh. That's probably very obscure. None of the listeners uh, know what that so is, but uh... I'm gonna double check. I have this very cool book right here. Uh... The wondrous thing about this uh, age we're living in, with uh, home offices and and all of that, is that uh, I have the luxury here of having a guest who not only has his entire like academic library probably in his house. But he also lives with a colleague of his. So his wife is yeah. also a. On a man, well, she's actually an archaeologist, but she's also uh, spe specialized in archaeology in combination with uh, onomastic sciences. So uh, names and archaeology in a lovely unification. Oh, wonderful. Uh, what a power couple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, when you're when you're bringing up Samnango, it's it's true that it's it's been guessed that it might be an ethnonym because of mm. there's also an unexplained but very similar name uh, further out from the in the fjord. So that's it's quite possible that there's a connection there. But um, the uh, the origin and potential ethnonym is obscure. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it would be one of many uh, such cases, I suppose. And also, oh, yeah. it's um, it's also uh, one one thing that I've always kind of uh, that I often think about is where exactly do the uh, historical borders uh, between these uh, counties go? Like, yeah. because uh, what is considered to be Rogaland today or Hordaland today might not necessarily have been, you know, either. Uh, say in the 10th century for mm. instance uh, some of the borders are of course natural borders that makes it you know obvious that it would be a border one of these borders could be found in Rogaland between Jaren and north of Jaren 
which is then more or less half, almost half of Rogaland would then not be Rogaland potentially. Um, but um, yeah, in some cases, there's a clear indication of, uh, of uh, well, in some cases, you have a very clear uh, topographic reason why it should be one or the other part of the uh, the country but if you have like the the things that you know in uh, in the middle ages we had things as in law domains areas where certain time uh, well certain what would you call it uh, well law areas and and assembly assemblies yeah. and stuff like that yeah, yeah. But it's a law, and, yeah, it's a law, law, yeah, yeah. <laughs> jurisdiction. Yeah, and also the, the church the domain also sort of followed at least similar areas. And if you look at the medieval domain of Gulating, which is, you know, the west part of the country, also consists of some strange connections into far deep east into the valleys uh, Valdres an example is a part of Stavanger Bispedome uh, so the bishopry of uh, Stavanger really you know had had their arms quite far out when collecting taxes an example for the church very interesting yeah, yeah. Well, well you see that sometimes I, I think in um, in the law codes there are like these very interesting phrasing like uh, that like that a certain domain reaches so far into the country uh, as far into the country as the as the salmon will go and stuff like that i mm. think i don't r recall exactly the source for that but the, that is like a phrasing that i came across once it's um, a very cool uh, very cool law i like it yeah it's a cool uh, it's a cool mental image yeah and just uh, just shows you how how everything all of that is tied in with the landscape and the economy of the landscape yeah. and and culture hmm. but yeah of course uh, speaking of natural borders of course you have and and names you have uh, places like Kvinherad which literally means like I don't know the split split hundred or something like that Kvin is something that is hmm. separated isn't hmm. it uh, I think in um, sometimes I think Bagsvein Birgisson uh, has written about this well he's argued I think in his Germund stuff that like uh, that Rogaland for a while at least, was had the connotation of being northern Rogaland, mm. so north of Jaren, while people while people from Jaren are referred to as being, you know, uh, I don't know what Jadir or... Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what the form is. Um, but uh, but I, I think that that's also kind of interesting because I, I don't think it necessarily says anything about what... Uh, about what uh, Rogaland was in, say, the... 8th century or 6th century mm. uh, but it does say something about the connotation that uh, that it had to an Icelandic offer in the 12th uh, or 13th yeah. centuries you know yeah. it's a uh... it's interesting enough yeah and that's probably what it is actually it's probably is, is not one monumental constant thing mm. and especially when we're considering that in the 800s uh, you know <laughs> we had this uh this this weird centralization uh, tendency yeah. that has been addressed also in in other episodes. You know, in the I think I talked about it in the in Norway's eternal return. Yeah. 
how Norway must at some point have been a completely absurd notion that all of these kingdoms are supposed to be one kingdom. Yeah. And then suddenly it's not um, so funny anymore. It's very alien to a lot of people who thought, well, shag this, I'm off to Iceland or uh, other islands in the West Sea. Well, we could go off with what exactly has been unified uh, by Harald Hofager, which is, you know, quite obscure because we don't have first-hand sources of it, really. No. Um, it's also claimed in historical sources that, or written sources that he's this guy originating from uh, Ingve Frey, this god, uh, and he's from the east part of Norway, it seems. But was he really? Yeah, that's the big dispute. Is he West or East Norwegian? Yeah. And what did he in inherit from his uh, yeah. from his dynasty? That's uh, not exactly clear. And whether we can trust the textual sources is uh, the different thing. And as you say, there are no contemporary accounts, I think, of of him. No. No, we have like coins from his like sons and stuff like that. But we nobody, no kings in his day and age, like in the Anglo-Saxon sources, have any idea who that this guy is. Hmm. It's, uh, it's uh, quite fascinating. We, we of course, have uh, the, um, the Skaldic poems, which seem quite likely to be actually preserved. So, uh, so he's, he's not just some made-up kind of uh, guy. He's he is a dude, but uh, yeah, what kind of dude is he and where is he from and why does he seem to be both from the west and from the east of Norway? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's funny because uh, the Skaldic poems, of course, are do appear to be genuine, but some of them are amalgamations of different poems about him. And mm. I think that it's funny because one has what could be interpreted as a description of him which is just like the only thing we really know about him apart from the fact that he allegedly had long hair or had like shaggy hair or however you're supposed to interpret the tales about him but you know uh but it's is described as as the as the throat large king like it, he has he's a big neck or something <laughs> like that the yeah. king with a big neck <laughs> so but i think that like that is by some people interpreted as uh, referring to like his enemies and then disparagingly as like the fatso or something like that uh -huh. but uh I've, I've seen that but i don't know if that's a credible one but otherwise it's interpreted you know uh, flatteringly as as the as the big strong king the bull neck who is capable of uh, making his enemies flee and just conquering the whole well not not the whole part of Norway, but the uh, the good bits. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting with those um, with the sources for like the Battle of Hafsur and um, how the the authors of the of the Skaldic poems and the sagas are very uh, concerned with uh, with his enemies and where they are from, hmm. and also so so there's like this these lists of of ethnonyms and also of course where they source their weapons from, you know that they have. Welsh spears and, uh, you know, a Welsh, uh, etymologically speaking, of course, uh, <laughs> doesn't mean just, the same thing. It just means just the continental, foreign. yeah, foreign yeah. spears. And... Yeah. 
which, uh, well, we have other evidence that one would use uh, mercenary armies even in those days. To talk, uh, to talk about something else, I really want to talk more about the temple, actually. The temple, at, yes. Yes. Of, uh, Örsta. Yeah, temple at Örsta, uh, which is, uh, as far as I understand, I haven't seen if there's any new news about it, but it seems like they based it mainly on uh, parallels uh, from, um, what would the main parallel be? Uppåkra in Skåne, yeah, Sweden, yeah. yeah. Uppåkra and Tissö, mainly. Mm. And that's it, basically. Do you know if there are any place names attached to this uh, area that, that are like Theophoric or something like that? In Ørsta? No. I've, uh, I haven't looked that far and that deep, but uh, it's, uh, we, we have pretty good sources, you know, that are just easily uh, available. And you have to travel quite far to get actual uh, indications of cultic activity. Uh, but of course, when in terms of place names, we don't really fully understand the uh, mechanisms behind name death and naming. So, when does a when does a name disappear? Because we have plenty of place names from well during the crisis on well the five hundreds with the following, you know. Uh, climate and pest situation that would probably lead to a lot of devastation uh, not that different from the black death era and we have preserved place names from these uh, 500s but in addition to that from the black death era we have plenty of names that just disappear um, and you know the the old the uh, the farms that all of a sudden don't have names get new names um, usually names that still today would be understood as meaning the barren farm so people who don't live there more or less um, so why does why why do you have preservation of names in one situation and not the other when the situations quite possibly are very similar um so it's it's really difficult to say really why don't we have any um place names around this temple in Elsta indicating that there is something interesting going on um the obvious answer could be well because it wasn't really that special whatever was going on there was not the most special thing about this place. Um, at least not in the naming situation. Mm. Um, but that doesn't, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that what went on there at some point wasn't super important. I'm not trying to discredit the whole temple find uh, or anything. I'm just you know, stating the fact that in toponymic evidence, we don't, we don't really see traces of it but yeah that's all <laughs> really well we can dispute a few things i suppose well like i think yeah of course the fact that this uh, is based mainly just on architectural criteria 
you know, uh, so that's a big assumption just there. But I think, you know, I, I looked from what I could see, uh, you know, it seems uh, like a perfectly reasonable interpretation, so I don't want to knock it either. I, I certainly <laughs> want to see uh, a temple found on Norwegian yep. soil, so so I'm probably positively biased towards the find in that regard. Yep. But there are a few yep. things that, like, uh, that, of course, uh, you see in the news uh, and of course because here in brute north we're very interested in the reception of things how things are interpreted and used and so i was paying close attention to what sort of stories were being spun about this uh, this find and of course one of them being that this is the first uh, cult house found yeah. on norwegian soil <laughs> which is uh, like interpretationally not true you know <laughs> uh, just a few years ago they found uh, one structure at Ranheim, in outside of uh, Trondheim, for instance, uh, which was then heralded as this big thing before they put a, I don't know, a apartment block over it or, or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what they built on it, but usually in Norway, whenever there's an archaeological dig, it's because they're going to thrash this place uh, fairly soon. So, um, so it's funded because, you know, whoever wants to build something has to make sure you don't destroy stuff without actually recording what's there. Yeah, and then there's the uh, the National Highway Project uh, E6. Yeah. Uh, where they found um, they found a ton of um, like gold foils at a site there at the Gulgubar sort of mm. thing. I don't recall if that was in association with the specific structure or not. That could have mm. been. I don't, I'm not really sure. But that, uh, yeah, I'm sure that that's, that's at least probably a cult site. Um, yeah, having the tin, no, the gold foil gulgubbers, uh, it needs to be, I don't know, a production place from them, for them, uh, if, if it's not a, actually a cultic site, because it's as far as we can tell, it's only found in places with, well, importance, religious importance, cultic importance. Yeah, exactly. And there's that. And we have uh, other finds uh, of uh, these gold foils uh, in Rogaland, for instance. And then we have the big question of uh, what is a temple, really? Yeah, in the in the Iron Age in Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, oof. Yeah, you need to invite my wife for this one. Uh, <laughs> she's that's her expertise. She's actually also been working with uh, several of these places that we've mentioned. So the 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 places, the temples that Elsta is compared to, sort of my my wife's uh, previous workplaces, and uh, yeah. Um, but um, what exactly is a temple in Iron Age Scandinavia and Viking Age Scandinavia? Well, for one thing, temple in what we consider as temple today, when you say a temple today, people think of, uh, I don't know, uh, well, certainly either some kind of Hindu or Roman kind of thing, I suppose. Um, so it's um, and those things can be quite distinct and different as well because you know in in the Roman context the temple is often just a, a building 
uh, for f where the you can go in and admire the statues of the gods, and occasionally yeah. there will be like processions or sacrifices there. But it's not yeah. like like in Hinduism, people go and they like intensely they pray, and it's a very like active site all the time. Maybe, yeah. uh, but um, but whether of any whether any of those are representative of of what would have been considered a hoof or a yeah. temple in a Norse context is uh, is completely that's anybody's guess I think yeah. and then you know what is the difference between the like there's a connection between the aristocratic dwellings you know and hall buildings yeah. and could a building be a temple occasionally and occasionally not that's probably my guess, also, yeah. yeah my guess is that it's uh, at least as soon as you know we have this uh, Viking age aristocratic big halls i'm fairly sure that uh, the big halls were used for religious social purposes and we also have to remember of course religion was not separate from any other aspect of everyday life for these people um, it's we don't really know if they even had a word for religion as you know uh, as a thing you well you have tradition the foreign said but what what is that does that just have to do with our way of doing stuff or does it specifically have to do with religion um yeah it's uh, unsolved questions really yeah we talked about that in the last episode uh with uh adrian rinde uh mm. who's uh a religious scholar from the University of Stavanger and um, he really uh, I really like the word uh, religious adjacency which we talked about then you know how you have behaviors that are if not uh, straight out religion they're adjacent to it yeah. the religious behaviors in a way mm. and uh, especially with with a society like like Iron Age Scandinavia that is completely blurry that there is no clear line between mm. what is secular and religious behavior almost but that that when you say that though uh, it we often fall like in the trap of uh, of enchanting the world a little bit you know it makes like yeah, like like everything it it almost sounds like this kind of like yeah, like 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 the hindus have with this with krishna and stuff like that that everything is done for like in this in, with this enchanted intent uh, which I don't think is necessarily representative at all either. It's just like that. It's, we have difficulty imagining a world where that is just like that. The gods have a presence everywhere, and it's just not a big deal. That's just how it is, you know. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, no, um, and of course we also uh, in in cultic activity. So we, we in modern language we use words like temple. When it comes to cultic activity in Iron Age and Viking Age, it's likely that it was quite plural uh, in the sense that it was performed in many different places. You have, you have the bogs clearly used for uh, cultic activities, and then you have uh, certain buildings that in at least some places are quite clearly connected to cultic activities. Uh, there's one on Bornholm at Sortemull, which is, you know, the place in, I think, 85% of all golden foiled gulgubbar are found at this site. 
which is you know ridiculous amount um, so there's this building which hasn't been fully excavated yet uh, i think within the next few years they will probably have funds to do that because Oof. the site is so uh, special um, oh yeah, yeah it's crazy so so you have that and you're of course in in the written sources you have uh, words for horg which is usually interpreted as sort of a stone structure which is squirted with blood during uh, sacrifices and cultic activity and then you have lun so the groves the somehow holy uh, sacred groves either for could be just meet up and have thing kind of things or um, yeah, have or an assembly cultic, there. yeah uh, activities like hanging stuff and the name of <laughs> hanging, odin hanging stuff <laughs> yeah yeah um so so you have all these words that seem to be well in close relation with cultic activities so they're not temples but they're uh, cultic sites uh, and then you have this word hov and um, which etymologically can be uh, compared to hof uh, deutsch or german hof just farm um, which is also, um, you know, in Old Norse, one of the meanings of this word, just a farm. But it's also, in other cases, used as sort of a sacral place, uh, feast hall, or, well, certainly used in, um, well, religious, religious connection. So is this a temple then? Uh, is is this the kind of building we're finding in Uppokra and Sotemul and Ørsta? Um, maybe in in some sources it's called uh, high timbered hov, so it's certainly a building in some sources, but not yeah. every time. As in, as in Wallispa, when the when the gods uh, gods construct the first temples. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, the, the, um, Horg, you know, the, or Horg, Harry in, uh, in, uh, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, f I feel like Swede, the Swedes are very, um, uh, it doesn't take a lot for the Swedish archaeologists to identify, uh, uh, a Horg, it seems. <laughs> it's like, it's just literally a pile of rocks, they'll say, yeah. ah, yeah, Harry. Oh, you have some burnt stones? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. uh important it's got to be it could be of course burnt stones could be used for brewing beer but it could also in the same sort of action of brewing this beer be placed in a heap and then somehow used for yeah cutting the throat of some bunny or <laughs> horse or what have you uh, whatever seems to be appropriate for the deity you're uh, offering to whether it's oh yeah I would love or... a stone altar made of brewing stones that would be yeah nice that would be, be quite something. something i'd like mm. uh <laughs> it's uh yeah that's uh that's uh that's quite uh quite interesting and and that of course uh, occurs in in place names as well like in it does. Hardanger, you have Horgana and quite frequently and 
quite frequently. There's also a hefty debate on uh, what this means. Um, your supervisors, your supervisor for your master thesis. Uh, is, yeah, he's quite convinced that this is not religious. It's uh, it's got to do with uh, borders and um, well, so, yeah, somehow a border. I haven't actually read this. Uh, he mentioned this article the other day when we mm. had this uh, seminar. Uh, so I haven't had time to read it, but it's it's going to be interesting for me to read because uh, I'm I can almost say for sure that I won't agree <laughs> with <laughs> with his conclusions already because I we have some quite interesting new archaeological evidence in a place that I'm not even sure I'm allowed to talk about. It's also my wife. Okay. Uh, yeah. Should I should I invite her over and maybe get her to talk about a bit about this uh, new place? Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have uh, Lorena yeah. on as well. Yeah. A moment. I'll fetch her. Hi, Lorena. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Long time now. See. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm working from home, and that's uh, nice. I think because you can just. Uh, delve into everything you don't have to worry about anyone coming and disturbing you and wanting to know about what you're doing <laughs> until now, until now. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah it's good i've been following your talk a little bit yeah. here so what do you want to know well i'm hearing uh, uh cryptic <laughs> things about uh about sacred sites and place names and uh so i'm very curious uh, if there's anything that can be revealed there uh that can be revealed in like uh, you you said you wanted to know about Harbu yeah. in particular yes yeah um i've just uh, handed in an article it's actually coming out pretty soon uh the first one that's in danish uh that i wrote together with uh, Lars Grundvall who is the archaeologist who is uh, digging at Harbu and it's a bit of a funny story because last year there was a, a mythology conference here in bergen where i was going to talk about the relation between sacral place names and archaeology, which is, of course, uh, incredibly exciting, but also sometimes difficult. And I talked about this place where they had found this uh, Fairstel treasure hoard, if you know about that. It's a big uh, gold treasure from the 10th century that came in Denmark with uh, detectorists found it, uh, I think it was in 2016. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I always wondered why they called it the Fairstel it's uh, it's a name that means uh, cattle trail, and uh, why why did they call the hoard that? Because it was found in Harabu, which is the the place name means Hark, it's Hark settlement, which is uh, uh, it's a sacral place name, or it's probably the the word Hark or Hog that's uh, denoting some kind of sacrificial site in the in the old Norse sources, and it's long been considered a sacral place name. Uh, in uh, in onomastics, so uh, so we knew about this place, but uh, then I wrote Lars Grunwald after I had given a talk about this place, and I said you should be aware that there might be something else there, uh, and you know it could be uh, like a central uh, um, 
sanctuary and he said well it's funny because we've just been digging there today <laughs> and we found a hole and a large very very large pile of stones that is very similar to the ones in the Lyra and uh, so it's kind of you know one of those situations where the hairs stand up on your neck a little bit that just happened to me right now <laughs> just, we had just been digging that up in those exact days um, and so he said, but let's write something about it together. And um, so I got to do all the, the work with the, with the place name elements. And I also looked at the other place names in the area. And the weird thing is that uh, about one and a half kilometer to the north of this Harabu site, where there is this heap of stones, which is you know, exactly what the place name uh, says that would be. There's, a, there's another place uh, with is this kind of temple that or like, it's a building that looks like the Upokra temple. Um, oh, we shouldn't call weird. it a temple because we don't really know what it was called. And we, um, calling it a temple is just our kind of terminology. But it's a, it's a building and there are deposits of uh, broken weapons and even a burned wagon of the Daibia type uh, at this site. And they've been excavating there uh, in these weeks. I think they just finished. So there, there's more because there's a lot of houses there as well and that place is called staffs Aya. and that's of course the word staff can also be uh in a sacral context so um that was interesting yeah. too so we have this whole place and it's actually in uh the area is called frös hell which is uh, of course uh, the 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 it's a theophoric name or is the the god freya so we might have to do with the kind of sacral center of fry here in south of Jutland. Oh so my that, god. <laughs> the, as far as I know from last, the, they only like trial excavated this uh, hole and the stone heap. And so far it's very big and it it's quite similar to the ones in Lyra. But uh, they're going back here, I think it was in November or December, so we might get some more news on it. I've told them to be careful to uh, do a lot of testing and maybe you know, take some soil samples so we can see if blood was spilled Jeez. on the stones, which was supposed to have happened. <laughs> but I think they did find something that could kind of date the stone heap to, I think it's from the, maybe it was the seventh century and up until the 10th century it had been in use. Um, and it's right next to that hall. And there's also a very, um, a smaller house of a very, uh, like, uh, what's it called crafty uh, like well built uh, but uh, they've only found, found part of it but in that house was found like uh, iron spirals uh, and those are known from for example the holes in Uppsala oh yeah 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 those are the, the, on these, the uh, decorative uh, things yeah. so it's it seems that this little uh, house that was also there uh, was also a kind of special building so it's super interesting and uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be so exciting to hear what, what they will be finding because that, that site was exactly where the huge gold treasure was found. Um, wow, Jesus fucking Christ. This is, <laughs> this is a, lot of, uh, a lot of stuff at once here. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's not like they've been secretive about it because they're, they're actually, uh, this, these finds have been out on the museum's own little uh, Facebook site. But I don't know if they're kind of uh, making the sensation that it, it that it actually is. 
uh, out of this story. To me, it's a sensation, <laughs> especially in uh, relation to the hug uh, name, because this could really move our understanding of this kind of uh, site, because it's been suggested that the stone heaps in Lyra, for instance, should be related to this term. But this is the first time we have the place name element and the, the structure together. Uh, and that's just fantastic. That is uh, that is insane. But what was this? What was this site called again? Um, the, it has many different names because mm -hmm. it's a whole area. So the uh, the the hoard is called Fairstel with the A. And uh, if you just uh, Google Fairstel uh, Skatten uh, or Fairstel Treasure Hoard, there will be you can see all these beautiful gold objects that come up. I think there were. At one point there were six arm rings, but I'm not sure because they keep finding more. Uh, oh <laughs> but um, so I'm not sure how many there were. Some of them were silver as well, but um, um, they, one place, the whole area is called Fæstel, but this little town was called Haraby. And then it, uh, the, the, the early temple was called the uh, Staus a Ahoy. And, um, that site dates back to the last century before our time and all the way into the sixth century. Also very interesting to note that it's just east from Scandinavia's first city, Ribe. Yeah, it's very close to Ribe. So, uh, but what kind of relation those two sites might have? No one's really started to think about that yet. <laughs> That's extremely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so nice to get something completely current on the show. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, it's literally, literally coming out of the ground as we speak. Um, and I just, I, the, the importance of uh, metal detectorists in this connection is just, uh, it cannot be understated because they've just been uh, the key element in, in finding these sites. Of course, it also takes some really excellent uh, archaeologists to uh, to excavate and uh, and Lars and his team uh, are, are doing a great work and they're working really fast uh, it seems but still being thorough so I'm I'm very excited about this area yeah. and I was very excited to be able to contribute to their work yeah so I'm 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 looking forward to this coming out actually in a kind of a larger forum. But it's uh, it's very accessible if you search for it online because they have put out pictures and most of it is in Danish though. Yeah, I'll provide some links I think so so people yeah. can check it out. Yeah, because there are images, so you can look at the images and also of the 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 house in. Uh, in uh, Stausea is, is also really impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a weird salt deposit next to a mound where there were like, I think it was up till around 13 uh, scabbards or pieces from salt from the migration period. And that one interpretation is that they were kind of stuck into the ground, something like that. Um, like sword. So they had been just like standing in. Like the yeah. half year of the uh, monument. Oh, like, like the swords in stone. <laughs> or the sword in the stone. That's, yeah. that's just uh, an idea because there was only uh, one uh, particular part of the swords that were preserved. But uh, 
um, I don't know actually what they've kind of concluded about that part, but it was quite exciting. The, the mound has a Bronze Age burial in it, so the mound has been there all the time. It's, all of it is kind of situated around this mound. Yeah, older at the time. So many, uh, so many opportunities for speculation here. <laughs> I yeah. think that Andreas Norberg, you know, the Swedish archaeologist, I think that he has an article about uh, uh, vertically deposited swords in Sweden. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if specifically Sweden, but he definitely has a has a, an article about uh, swords being thrust down into graves. So it could be relevant for them. I'll mention it to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know what else they're kind of. I'm, I was hoping that they would might maybe find something in this Stoutsea area where, where we could kind of see this is the place of the staffs. And of course, you know, hoping that it would be maybe a fenced in area uh, or else a place where these uh, God uh, images of gods, the staffs had been standing. But yeah. that's, of course, really hard to find because what would it be? Just some posts uh, in the ground and it would be almost impossible to actually see it. So, um, yeah, but the place name does indicate that something like that could have been there. Unless it's just some dull medieval name saying that it there were some staffs, uh, <laughs> some some know. kind of uh, <laughs> some kind of staff in the well possibly in the meaning of border stone, like it, it, it's border post maybe, border yeah. post or border mm. stone. It's a common word for border stones in uh, Gogalan and Agdal in particular in uh, medieval times at least. But mm. the word staff is in in the law codes of i can't recall which medieval law one of the terms used for what is now forbidden so mm. it's not allowed to uh oh, what's the phrase Man's yeah correct. i recall something like that yeah it's forbidden to worship staffs yeah basically <laughs> Staff is also a term for uh, idols in Baltic uh, tradition. So oh, really? Like etymologically connected to, or is it like... Uh... I'm going to have to check that up, but uh, we'll see <laughs> after I've checked it. Yeah, no, that is extremely fascinating. Uh... They also have, I think, another another term that that occurs in the uh, in the laws are um are uh stalli or something like that which is which is of course these platforms uh, i think they speculated that something like that might have been attached to um to the uh, to the ranheim uh site mm. yeah previously but i don't quite recall so, um, well, uh, Eric just asked about if there's more evidence towards uh, the Ørsta find being, you know, a religious cultic place. He said something about the, was it the... Uh, what? He mentioned something. There's one more indication, at least, that he hadn't mentioned in that he had just found uh, the other day when he talked about it. 
I don't remember him saying anything no. else than it being kind of the building and the construction and its similarity to other kinds of buildings, which is, of course, the one I just mentioned with the, with the spirals uh, from Harbu would be kind of one, one other example of this kind of building. And they are beginning to kind of show up in, in many places. So I think the more we have, the more certain we become, we become about this uh, impossible interpretation. Uh, there are still some that kind of have some other arguments, but um, I think it's clear that this is some kind of special uh, building with a special function. And when we say special, we mean in a religious way. <laughs> Um, and it has a certain status, um, and of course in Ubokra it's clear with the, the there are deposited vessels uh, under the floor inside, and there are uh, gold foil figurines and uh, and the weapons outside the building, and so that of course is always being drawn out. But uh, the the one at Stausair was actually very similar. It had the weapons. There was also a deposit of. Uh, there were two gold deposits, but it turned out to be the same kind of neck ring of gold that had been um, taken up and curled and put into two different deposits that were associated with some of the main posts. Um, and then this uh, Daibia wagon, which is really interesting that it had been burned and broken, um, but they were still looking into this part of the find, but it's one of the most exciting things, of course, because these wagons have some kind of uh, special status I think also and have sometimes been associated with uh, Tacitus's mention of this Natus cult uh, that was uh, using wagons of course that's always been taken out but um, uh, but of course it seems that they used these uh, elaborate wagons for some special purpose um, extremely interesting to try to imagine what the hell was going on at these sites yeah but it's always it's very interesting when you see uh, this kind of religious archaeology uh, how you can kind of get the sense that uh, that these uh, rituals were quite elaborate for instance with um, I think it's Hovstadir in uh, in Iceland where they have uh, the, the the deposits of the cattle skulls mm. and the the goat that was apparently buried, presumably alive, inside the building when they stopped using it. But I think it, with the uh, with the cattle skulls, they uh, they had some evidence that it was uh, they were decapitated and at simultaneously they hit it in the head with a sledgehammer or or something like that or a club. So very dramatically to separate the the head from the body. And so you get this indication of a of a very specific kind of ritual, uh, but it's not quite enough to exactly reconstruct all that happened. Of course, we don't have that sort of information. But uh, and also some of the uh, the sites that they have in Sweden, where they have like these these platforms that have almost like the sequential uh, stone setting underneath that wouldn't even have been visible to the to the people participating, it's just part of the sacred architecture of the site. It's uh, tantalizing. Yeah, especially, I guess it's Jötavi, uh, not talking about now. Uh, yeah, yes, Jötavi, yeah. Nine, uh, nine 
stone platforms um, where they uh, they looked at the soil and found out that probably blood had been used or squirted or I don't know if you can say deposited when it's <laughs> when it's blood <laughs> but uh, but there weren't that many bones at that site if there were any but uh, but uh, there were kind of evidence that um, of organic material um, yeah so it it did mean something how it was constructed even though as you say it wasn't visible I've also been thinking about these places with V that have been found in Sweden. They're kind of, they're very, very different in their outlines. So if we kind of try to find a place, you know, we have this terminology and we have an idea of what we're going to look for in the archaeological finds, but, uh, but they're so different. So we can't really, ha we don't have any kind of model for how to, to reconstruct a V because it can be, it could be anything um depending on the place and uh, and also time because they vary a bit in time mm -hmm. but um but still it, it does seem to there seem to be some kinds of uh some kind of logic <laughs> and uh, and relation between these places but they're just not similar it's not like a um an outline and that's very different from these uh, houses that we're, we're coming back to the the place that Søren Dienhoff has found, because those places are very kind of schematical. What you find at Tisø and at Harby and at Jærstad and at uh, uh, what's Ubokra uh, uh, maybe, but well, actually it's not been fully excavated, but also at Lejre, they just seem to follow some kind of scheme. Uh, so they're so similar. Um, and that's a little bit strange. Is it the same guy who's traveling around and helping them all build these sites? And he has this kind of way to build them, or is it just a fashion? <laughs> um, yeah, it's very, very strange. Why they are so similar? Why are they so similar? Yeah, it's strange. Mm. It's very strange, especially when you have such huge variety of everything else in Scandinavia at the time. Yeah. Speaking of, of, of V, I think um, we were talking about uh, uh, Tacitus, you know, and uh, and the chariots and things like that, and uh, sacred sites. And we've been talking about place names. It's almost impossible not to uh, to think about uh, um, Tusnes and Yardarlog, you know, in, uh, in Hordaland. Yes. This uh, article written by Magnus Olsen, of, I believe, who um, um, have some quite fascinating thoughts about this this whole sequence that Tacitus describes taking place at uh, an island in Hordaland um, called Tysnes. So the the what do you a ness really it's also an english term yeah in, uh, so a ness, ness of the god tiwas yeah exactly originally though it like the like the, the name of tusnes the tusnes island would have been njordarlog which means like the law uh, domain of of njord yeah. uh, etymologically connected with uh, nartus presumably mm -hmm. um but um 
but so yeah, so Magnus Olsen wrote this article, the Gamle Norske Øna Njardalog, or something like that, the old Norwegian island name Njardalog, and you know, uh, just to provide some context for the listeners, this is one one of the highest concentrations of sacred place names in entirety of Scandinavia, I think. Uh, and um, it has uh, some interesting archaeological finds. Um, we mentioned Eldar Heide, who was my old supervisor. I joined him at an, a test excavation a few years back at uh, what I understand is uh, Tusnes itself, like the Ness of, of the god Tiwaz. Um, and um, associated with this, uh, this peculiar solar phenomenon uh, at the equinoxes and solstices, uh, where the sun disappears behind the mountains and kind of lights up this one mound. Uh, the excavation itself was <laughs> a very anticlimactic. We didn't really find anything. Uh, <laughs> and one reason is because we presume, we think that um, the solar phenomenon might have been observed from a distance. Mm. And there happens to be a farm. I think that farm is called Ve. Uh -huh. That is so V, so yeah. sacred place or sanctuary right across the waters from that and would have been, have a, had a tremendous view uh, to see the solar phenomenon if they, if indeed that is the, uh, which it does seem to be like the, the reason why that place was special. And of course there are like, uh, I think Magnus Olsen sort of, I don't know if, I don't recall if Magnus Olsen straight out su suggests that Tusnes was the island uh, that Tacitus uh, or Tacitus describes, uh, but uh, but he certainly does try to build up like the expectation here that uh, that there is a connection between uh, those complexes. Yeah, because there's even like a, like a, a lake in the middle of Tusnes, which is kind of secluded, and there's no there's no tradition for anybody living there locally, and it's called Vevatna, literally the the sacred lake. So you have like Nertus, you have Tiwaj, you have uh, sacred lakes. Uh, and huge concentrations of, of standing stones and all sorts of peculiar stuff. Loads of uh, place names indicating a wide variety of sacred places and use of, well, different cultic activity. Super interesting. It's certainly a very interesting place and also interesting in the context of Tiwaz. Yeah. Uh, who is not a god that is represented much in Norwegian or Swedish place names at that, but uh, it's found, uh, I wouldn't say common, but there are more of them in, in Denmark. So that's kind of interesting. I just, I want to remark with the Tacitus um, that of course we have, we don't know uh, what any of the places that he's talking about what exact place it is so that's also always easy for scholars to say well it was here yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know some of the S Swedish scholars are always talking about it's in Gotland or Öland or middle Sweden and the Danes want everything to be happening there and it might actually be everything in northern Germany I mean we don't know um, but still I think that his information can be relevant to how we, we look at these things when we find um, similarities in his descriptions and the material we actually find. Uh, so it's not necessarily irrelevant. Um, but um, this, uh, this uh, solstice phenomenon is extremely interesting, yeah. I think. 
Um, and I think it would be worth maybe going back to that place where you were and looking at it with, for example, some geo radar that has been giving some good results in other places. And of course, also, I don't know if you had metal detectors, but uh, employing some other, a full range of methods on the site would probably give some results. Yeah, we found a, a trash heap from the 16 or 1700s. So that's what we found. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, yeah. uh, but you know, it's, uh, we didn't excavate the mound there itself because we, because we couldn't, um, for very obvious reasons. But, uh, I think when there was nothing else going, like when we had no indication of any prehistoric finds there whatsoever, uh, we started, uh, and, and also I think that they had, a they found a horse skull in the mound that had been carbon dated. Uh, at the to a very you know again very anticlimactic date it was like early modern or something like that but then it was there was kind of a question whether this uh, was actually accurate because apparently uh, sheep when they you know they they leave their waste on the pasture lands that can apparently affect carbon dating sometimes yeah uh, so, uh, so um, they were wondering if it was a false positive or something like that. But working on the assumption, this is this is some very ad hoc archaeology that I've seen from the late Asla uh, Bruno uh, Olsen, where he said that hypothetically this uh, this mound, you know, the dating of that has been disputed if it's actually a, a burial mound at, at all or if it uh, is a a root cellar because it was apparently used. No, I don't mm -hmm. know if the, no, I actually I think. There's no evidence that it was used as a root cellar, but that was like has been a counter argument. But I don't think that there is a tradition of that kind of root cellars on Tis on Tisnes itself, so it's disputable. But I think that they 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 rationalized that since this is hypothetically a post, you know, a post medieval monument, uh, we could probably you know look a little bit at it. <laughs> so I think that, so I think we lifted up like we 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 lifted up a couple of stones and found um, uh, burnt cereal grains there, like burnt barley or something like that, in the stone structure, which is interesting. Uh, I think put the stones back, and I think we're gonna do like a crowdsourced uh, carbon dating of it, mm. which I don't think ever happened. Uh, and you know, Asle Brun Olsen sadly, you know, has since passed. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen or what the fate of those grains were. But uh, that would probably, at least, since it was kind of retained in the structure itself, give us uh, an indication of how old the building is. Was it uh, like uh, an earthen mound, or was it a rose, like a... No, yeah, it's an. Uh, it's very interesting actually because it's an earthen mound, but it has a very clear stone, square stone chamber, okay. like a room. There's, it's like literally a room. Um, that uh, sounds like a grave mound. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and then it has, but in the center, at the of this mound, there's like this altar construction. I don't know if you've seen like these old pictures of it, but I can probably dig that up. But there's like pictures from the excavation that like it's very clearly like this. It looks like an altar, you know, to to my wishful thinking eyes. <laughs> that's that's what it looks like. And they found uh, the 
the soil was very dense and black, you know, greasy soil, which, you know, is, is very familiar in the context of, of sacrifices. And they found a big abundance of, of oyster shells and things like that there. So, so there's a lot of uh, interesting things going on. Seems like a place someone needs to get back to. <laughs> yeah. But um, I can maybe try to roll some snowballs at the University Museum here in Bergen and see if someone will take up the torch from Aslebron Olsen. Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing if, if that could happen. Because I'm sure that uh, the final chapter about uh, that site has not been written yet. No, there are just too many interesting things out there, both with the names and the archaeology. Mm. Um, and it's it's weird that something like that is just out there, right? And no one's actually just grabbing the chance and uh, going for it. But a lot of interesting things are happening right now. Yeah. And as you see with the these uh, ship, uh, the Yellowstad uh, ship that's being excavated, and they also had some good results with... Uh, these different ways of scanning the mound before. So um, what I'm thinking is that that could maybe be an approach to try to look at what what was in the mound, and then you can make some kinds of uh, you can you can kind of make this uh, sampling of the soil in the mound without actually excavating it and getting up up, up some charcoal or or grain uh, and trying to date that without. Um, without having to do too much digging. So you can actually find out a lot with uh, non-destructive methods. It's so extremely fast. Geologist with uh, this earth, uh, it's called a yorpor or like, or what, what's it drill. called? Uh, no, yeah. it's, like they just, it's like a hollow metal thing. I don't have yeah. this terminology from geology, but they uh, use it to kind of stick into box and everything and they can take out, they get like a profile. Okay. Yeah, they get like a core sample. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But of course, if if there are too many rocks in there, it might be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's such an obscure site for for what it is. Uh, like it uh, was probably it could have been this extremely important regional cult site that would have been known to everybody. You know, <laughs> like maybe throughout Scandinavia like people might have been in the know and and yet it's just this kind of obscure island today but although I I was about to say I was about to call it a cult site in the sense that it's uh it it does have like a cult following in a way of uh, of people who are aware of these contexts and they go to visit it of course right. you know as as in this kind of like prehistoric tourism sense yeah, and also an uh, an interesting note to uh, mention here is that the fact that you have the place named with a god Tiwar being an uh, unusual god in place names in uh, Norway has also been an argument for the area to be settled by tribes from further south, namely the Harudas giving the name to Hordalan. So it sort of uh, ties up the whole from end to start uh, talk here. It's, uh, 
yeah, one of the names of the filkies. Yeah, that is that is great. That is also the most difficult thing to do in a podcast to tie it all together, <laughs> which yeah. we have done there. And Wonderful. I've been uh, bitching about the name Viking of one of these huge areas. Yes, uh, please, please, uh, please do bitch about that. <laughs> yeah. So this this compilation of several older filki. Um, have been you know, crammed together and gotten the new name Viking, which is a, a ridiculous grammatical form that has nothing to do with any kind of spoken language in Norwegian history ever. Secondly, it's the term itself is, you know, it, it's, it means bay, the bay. It's an old term for the areas around uh, of the Oslo Fjord. So we, previously we had the uh, counties Østfold and Vestfold, so east and west of this fjord. And Vestfold is now part, if I'm not mistaken, of this beacon. Uh, so the bay goes from the actual bay to up towards far into the deep, deep mountains. It's ridiculous, why would you call this the bay? And it's just a case of, well, we, we have all these different filki now, and we can't just say this and this and this and this and this filki all together in one name. Uh, that must be their, uh, well, sort of the reason why they made this uh, name Viking. Um, Viking is not some they didn't invent this uh, term last year. Uh, the term which would make sense to use in Norwegian now would be vika. It's an uh, old, comes from Old Norse vikin, so with e, e n ending. Um, and it's been, well, through the Middle Ages and up to modern time, been used about various uh, places or various areas of this bay area. And uh, some people have also suggested that the word Viking re origins in the term, well, the regional term, Viking. Um, so, so the term existed, but the fact that, that you would use an ungrammatical correct form, or well, grammatically incorrect form for this huge area, all the way to the top of the mountains. Not that, you know, the the top of the mountains were previously called Buskeru, which is a, sort of a clearing name, also a very strange name to have for such a huge filki. Uh, but it, it's, it has its reasons. It's from old Biskopsrud, so bishop's clearing. And of course, bishop being in power. Um, and it's more sensical than calling it Viking, though, for sure. Like up there, like the, the you're not in the bay anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, but then again, you have almost all, well, at least a huge part of the names that are names of vast areas originate originally from a very specific locality. You have. Well, Africa, I think, is a good example. Africa is now the name of a huge continent, but originally 
possibly just an ethnonym of a tribe living in uh, Libya, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. Uh, so the Romans would then use the term for a part of Africa, uh, and then a region of Africa, and then just the whole incredibly huge continent of Africa. So, so all big names have usually smaller origins, or at, le at least in uh, spatial terms. So that's me bitching about Viking. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, oh, we've been covering a, a bunch of extremely fascinating subjects, and I'm sure we could just go on and on and on. You know, with Tysnes, of course, there's cult continuity because you've got the Guild of St. Olaf there, who I talked about in the bear episodes where they drank such extortionate amounts of beer uh, that I I can I can hardly imagine my I can I can hardly believe my eyes when I'm reading the sources like how much malt they were carrying to to brew beer for their festivities but uh, but yeah it's it's a it's a fascinating topic uh, that could be uh, uh, extrapolated upon into infinity yeah. I think yeah yeah um also, the other day when we had this uh, seminar, got a very interesting detail from a place far up into the mountains called um, Hallingshade. So it's a place name, uh, compound of Halling, which is uh, ethnonym of the Hallingdal, which is sort of uh, the valley area from the middle of the mountain stretching eastwards. Uh, when you come from Western Norway, you, one of the routes you could take. Well, in example, if you take the train from uh, from Bergen to Oslo, you would go through Hallingdal. So this Hallingshade is an area where they have cooking pits, and there's archaeological evidence that there's a continuity in the use of cooking pits. Nine hundred meters above sea level dating back to 300 bc which is yeah crazy. but, but 300 bc until when well until yeah that's i have to uh call the uh archaeologist again. <laughs> well, medieval right yes so they found horseshoes and nails my wife has a very good brain <laughs> for this so they found horseshoes and nails from medieval times, at least. There's continuity up until uh, medieval times. And of course, shade, Maybe even modern. shade is a term used for, well, it's a term used for borders, but also a term used for a place where you have these horse events, like uh, things, yeah, yeah. Which is horse fights. And, races and... Um, um, so this is quite possibly a place where people met you have uh, at Hallingshade in example you have three different you know, four different parts where you can uh, come from different areas of, uh, of from Norway and meet up here far into the mountains nothing trees don't grow here or anything like that you have no structures uh, so they just meet up possibly sleep under the stars, uh, trade, drink, fight, make their horse fights, 
and leave. So you have very few archaeological evidence apart from these cooking pits and you know stuff that has been uh, forgotten or lost. Yeah, is this? I, I feel like yeah. I I saw something about this recently. There's like hundreds and hundreds of cooking pits or something like that. Or yeah, I can't I can't tell you the amount. Uh, I don't think that was specified, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely insane. The continuity there, because every time I like, every time I see something that seems to be super old, surviving into you know, into into the medieval period or even modernity, uh, I always think ah, that's that's too good to be true, right? You know, it's uh, no yeah. no way something can just continue to exist for such a long time. But as we like, as as I talked about in the last episode, like uh, old culture is derivative, and when you have these very conservative societies where there's not a lot of drastic changes happening uh, across the centuries, and um, where people don't move a lot necessarily either, mm. <laughs> why why is that so far fetched? Why do we have to imagine that there has to have been some sort of uprooting event that uh, that took the party away? Like, I think when you have the evidence, right, of course, this is not something that we see. This is something extraordinary. It's not something we see every day. But when you have 300 BCE, up until at least the Middle Ages, just cooking pits being used continuously, that's that's insane. It is. It is uh, incredible. Uh, and also because these place names with you know, containing shade are often found in very interesting areas, you know, close to churches of, you know, high age or close to other place names that indicate culture, cultic activities. Um, so cent centrality and cult seems to have been important. So social and economic status connections, but then all of a sudden in the deep mountains, very interesting. Yeah, that is, that is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And you can go there if you, if anyone is interested, there's a train stop called Hallingshade. If you take the train from Oslo to Belgium or the other way around, just get off and take a walk for 20 minutes and you're there and there's nothing there. <laughs> there's just water and some shrubs uh, and quite possibly a, depending on on the time of the year good for skiing or some high uh, i don't know birds interesting birds or animals that you wouldn't usually see because they're arctic uh, so far into the mountains probably snow in the summer as well um, at least not that far away from where you can find snow Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I had a terrible amount of fun recording and re-listening to this episode. It's always such a joy to talk to someone as passionate about their work as Lorena and Christer is. And I just want to use this great episode to shine some honor on a scholar that's been terribly important in the life of all three of us but who sadly passed away this year, um, to me quite unexpectedly. Sabjörg Vallakor Norreide. Sabjörg was a professor at the Department of Archaeology, History, Cultural Studies and Religion at the University of Bergen. 
She was renowned for her research on early Norwegian urban centers and the Christianization. And to many, and certainly for me at least, she was one of the first friendly faces of archaeology at the University of Bergen with her infectious enthusiasm and passion for the field. As caddy and competitive as academia can be at its absolute worst, Sebjörg always went beyond the call of duty to make students and co-workers feel welcome and cherished. And I can barely think of any people who made a bigger, friendlier social impact on the interdisciplinary medieval and prehistoric community in Bergen. It feels cheap to say something so heavy and then grift for the Patreon, but you don't have to pay me anything by all means, since I'm working partially on a probably unhealthy compulsion anyway. But if you love Brute Norse and uh, you feel an unhealthy compulsion to support me on Patreon, then you're certainly welcome to do so. There are various sorts of rewards that I can offer in return. The best is probably in the form of access to the Brute Norse Patreon community, consisting of a brainy and strange collection of eccentric coal biters that I am proud to have brought under one proverbial roof. All supporters obviously get a permanent 20% discount on shirts in the Brute Norse store as well as early access to all the episodes. Some higher tiers get a handwritten postcard by me and an embroidered patch maybe even. Anyway, if you don't want to do any of that shit, I am content with you speaking well of Brute Norse in a public forum and sharing it with your friends. And on that note, I shall let you go. Have a good night.